Hey y'all, this is Culture Soup, where tech, culture, and business collide. It's a podcast that spoons up everything hot from social media. I'm your host, L. Michelle Smith, and each episode, we bring you some of the most notable and not yet notable thought leaders in tech, business, and culture. There's nothing better than operating in your full, authentic self. Whether it's at work, whether it's at home, or anywhere you go. You know, some of the foremost experts say that you do your best work when you're in your most authentic self. When you're feeling good in your own skin. Things happen to you that are very good when you're operating in your own skin and doing you. That's what happened to my next guest. You'll hear his story, but in this key moment in time, his very own tipping point, Jared Hill found himself right in the midst of doing what he loved to do and doing it well and everything changed. I was blessed to meet him the very same year it happened. In fact, it was only a few months later. There he was sitting on the sofa in the upstairs parlor of an incredible restaurant in New Orleans, Louisiana. We were both there for the National Association of Black Journalists Convention. But we had met through a friend before, virtually. As his tipping point unfurled, this mutual friend was reaching out to me and asking me what he should do. And the little bit of advice that I shared facilitated the meeting that we had at NABJ. So everyone, I'm proud to introduce my friend, pop culture and political journalist, host, and freelancer for MSNBC, NBC BLK, The New York Times, Essence, and so much more, Jarrett Hill. Let's start with our culture soup moment. As everybody knows, I say social media is culture soup. So I have gone through the threads and the thing that jumped out at me that reminded me of you is all of this talk and all of this content about Michelle Obama. And we'll explain to everybody why that is a bit later. I don't see the connection, okay. And I think I might have teased it, so I might have given it away. That being said, she has a new book coming out. It's supposed to drop tomorrow. So let's see, we air on Thursday. It would have been... Yes, so it's already out. We haven't read it yet, though. (laughs) And we will. But we've been listening to all the little excerpts that are coming out as she's doing publicity. And she's talked to Robin Roberts. I hear she's talked to Oprah. I mean, Shelly O can command the big interviews, right? 
And I was, yes, yes. I was really interested to hear about her point of view on the inauguration of when the Trump administration came in. She said she wasn't that, she sure. wasn't that all about it. Did you hear about that? She didn't look amused. <laughs> Did you hear what she <laughs> talked about? Yes, absolutely. She said that, you know, it was a, a it was a drastic difference or drastic change from the two inaugurations she had been that prior when she'd seen her husband being inaugurated and when she was becoming first lady and being re-inaugurated. Um, and there was such a diverse uh, platform of people there that represented, you know, America and then being there that day uh, when Donald Trump was being inaugurated, she noticed that like, it looked like none of that progress yeah. had been made. And so she said that, she didn't feel the need to continue to to smile yeah. all the time. And she's like, I didn't feel that way, so I didn't smile. I didn't make well, myself smile. Well, you tell? Like, before this book even was even thought of, Absolutely. I remember watching her body language, and she was so stiff. Mm -hmm. And she didn't look like Happy Shelley O. She just looked like, I'm going to do this. This is my last act as a, a first lady. And we're going we're gonna to bounce yep. after this. <laughs> Listen. Well, and that was an interesting part of it because she said that in the uh, in in the interview that she did with Robin Roberts, she said like it was a mixture of all of the feelings. There was a pride, and we have come through this process, and it is over, and we you know did a great job. But there was also like fear and anxiety, um, and happiness right. and relief, and you know, a lot of different things. And I can imagine like having done that work and done all that you had done for the country, and then knowing that you were handing the keys over to this person. Um, you know, it, it's, it's gotta be a, a scary, it's gotta be a, a, a culture soup, if oh, you will, absolutely. of feelings, uh, to, to hand that over. Yeah. Yeah. And then she went on to say that she extended herself as most first ladies do to the incoming first lady, Melania Trump, mm -hmm. uh, just as Laura Bush had extended herself to Michelle and she never heard yeah. from Melania. And so she put that into the universe, and, and it kind of came back today. Did you hear that Melania, Melania's people said something? In, I, I didn't hear what Melania's people said. I've been in interviews all day today, so I, I haven't been connected yeah. to the news today. But I did say that, yes. that she that hadn't been reached out to by, by Melania, um, which was interesting to me because I do wonder if Melania feels like she can reach out to Michelle. Well, and that's what's interesting. So she did respond, and I was watching CNN today, and they reported that a statement came out that pretty much said, you know, I depend on my own people for, you know, my counsel, which, all righty. <laughs> um, you know, there was some speculation. That's a very Trumpy response. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, there was some speculation between the two reporters that were talking that, you know, since she has felt attacked or, you know, people have felt like she's, they've come for her, she kind of feels like she has to cocoon. That wasn't the word that they used, but that she has to, you know, rely on the people around her. So I thought that was sure. a very interesting response. I will say I'm, I'm one of the more sympathetic people to Melania that I know, because most of the people that I know are like, I ain't worried about her. <laughs> Uh, she did that to herself, you know, and I, I get that, mm -hmm. and I, I do feel a degree of that. Um, but I know, like, I I always I'm always really cautious with how I I talk about her and um, think about her because 
I always feel like when I see her, when I hear her, when I read about her, I always feel like I'm I'm seeing someone in a hostage situation mm-hmm. that doesn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And I know that there's like an, a, a level of humor that comes along with saying that, but I, I genuinely mean that. Um, yes, she knew what she was getting herself into when she married that man, but she didn't plan on, on all of this. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I do have a level of sensitivity. And then considering the history that I have with Melania Trump, um, I'm also always mindful of it. So, right, yeah. right. So you mentioned the history you have with Melania. And, I'm sorry, and, but I say that? Yeah, you, you said a little something <laughs> about that. We're going to kind of ladder up to that because I met you the very <laughs> same year at yes. NABJ and mm-hmm. the NBC dinner. It was a private dinner and you were sitting there. But yeah. we kind of had connected before anyway through someone we both know. Skylar Rizell is listening. Hello. Shout out to Skylar. <laughs> Shout yes. out to Skylar. So anyway, all of this kind of led up to you being at NABJ, and that's the National Association of Black Journalists. You know, my podcast listeners have heard me talk about NABJ almost ad nauseum, so they understand yeah. my relationship. And Jared is now a member too. But yeah, I'm before VP that, of our chapter. That's right. right. VP of yeah. the chapter in LA. So before I met you, Something happened. Um, I believe you were in, were you in a Starbucks or you were in a cafe? You were in a Starbucks. Yes. So uh, about two and a half years ago now, I was sitting in a Starbucks um, watching the Republican National Convention uh, stream live on my computer. Um, I was also live tweeting and instant messaging with a friend on Facebook and just, you know, having a regular evening. Multi-screening um, like we do. Exactly. I, I always, I often call it millennialing. <laughs> um, I was doing like a bunch of things at one time. Um, and uh, M- Melania Trump got up to do her speech at the RNC, which I was particularly interested in because it was really her first major moment in the, in the spotlight um, throughout the, the entire campaign. And so I watched and I was kind of tuned in and out. And uh, as she was speaking, I heard her saying words I immediately recognized. Um, she was saying, you know, the height of your achievement is the reach of your dreams and your willingness. And I said aloud, uh, along with her and your willingness to work for them. And I was like, oh, yeah, Michelle Obama said that. And kind of was like, oh, my God, Michelle Obama said that. Okay, like, wait, wait, I, wait, wait, wait. Let's back up. You, yes. you pretty much had that speech almost memorized. It had that much of an impression on you from when no. Michelle said it? No. So what's funny is I, if you had asked me 30 seconds before, like, what did Michelle Obama say in 2008? I would have been like, why would I know that? Like, I don't know. <laughs> Um, but it's funny because two things have happened since then. One, I do remember hearing her say that line of the speech, the height of your achievement is the reach of your dreams and your willingness to work hard for them. Um, and I remember in the moment thinking like, that is a really beautiful line. Mm -hmm. I just thought it was a really great piece of speech writing. Um, and I actually wrote that line on Facebook years ago. Oh, wow. um, Which came back to me in, you know, Facebook does on this day. On this day. And it, yeah, and it popped up in my on this day, and I was like, oh my god, that really was a thing for like I'm not making that wow. up in my mind that it was a thing for me a number of years ago, and so 
Thank you to Facebook for I that. I say shout out to uh, Mark Zuckerberg there. Yes. <laughs> you didn't get the credit. Even though we have a lot of challenges with you right now, you did that. <laughs> you did that. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So when she said it, it wasn't that I knew the whole speech. I just knew that little mm-hmm. moment or whatever. And I ha- it wasn't even, like, in the forefront of my mind. I always tell people that I... Uh, it was like hearing a song that you hadn't heard for a long time. Like if I asked you for the lyrics to the theme song of a show from childhood, like it would take a moment and mm-hmm. as one comes up then the next one and the next and the next. And so it, it happened that way for me. So it wasn't that I had it memorized. It was just something that stuck out to me back then and came back. So uh, in the, the bell went off. And then what did you do? Well, I was live tweeting. So at the time I had like 1700 followers, I think. And I was just like tweeting, like, well, pretty sure, you know, uh, Melania must have loved Michelle's speech since she plagiarized it. And then I was <laughs> like, no, funny. like, seriously, this is plagiarized. <laughs> and my reporter hat kind of went on. And I was like, no, I know that this is a thing. Mm-hmm. So I went and I started Googling, like, uh, Michelle Obama, you know, uh, uh, convention speech 2012. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was from 2012. And I searched for the word willingness. Mm-hmm in the speech, because I, I thought that was an unusual word that she wouldn't have multiple times. And then I found eventually that it was in the 2008 speech. I was like, oh, yes, of course. Um, and I highlighted that little section and screenshotted it and posted it on a tweet. And then um, maybe an hour or so later, someone had posted a U- on YouTube, like a shoddy video where they had taken their iPhone or whatever and like like recorded the screen. Right. And um, I went back and I was like, no, like, I'm sure that this is a thing. And so I was trying to tweet out the link with the time code to show like starts right here. Um, and I clicked a few seconds earlier in the speech and I was like, oh, these are a a few more words actually. And then a a few more words and a few more. And then I realized like, this is a whole paragraph. Mm -hmm. It's not even just the one line that I knew. Um, and so then I was like, holy crap, this is a story. Like, this is insane. A huge story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I screenshotted the even bigger one and retweeted it. And the tweet that went out 25, that was retweeted 25,000 times that week was like, correction. It's not just like this little section. Correction. She stole a whole graph from Michelle's wow. speech. Here's the screenshot. And then... Uh, tweeted that out. And then I started emailing everyone that I could see on MSNBC mm-hmm. trying to figure out what their email address is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably name, dot, this, that, that, you know. Uh, and the rest was history from there. Wow. So you automatically end up on a press junket of, sor- of sorts, right? You're everywhere. Yeah, no, I was... I was that night, I tweeted that thing out at like nine-ish, maybe. Um, before I went to bed that night, I had done six interviews. Um, all of the above, yeah. Two to the UK, CBS, NBC, um, the New York Times. Like, like it was just like it was six different interviews, and I was really fortunate because my uh, friend that I lived with at the time, he works in publicity, mm-hmm. and so like my emails were starting to just roll, and yeah. it was like email after email email and he was like take that don't do that nope yep oh respond to that <laughs> like you know he was like he was there mm-hmm. i was like this is nuts and he was like going out of town the next day yeah. and i was like no we can't I-? do that <laughs> exactly so uh i was like what am i gonna do and so one of the emails that came through that first night was from ktla mm-hmm. uh here in los angeles which is a big station for us here and I thought I would go do a morning show the next morning. I said yes, and I thought that'd be my day. And I ended up doing 13 interviews back to back to back that day. In one day? In one day, going from KTLA wow. to NBC. 
the LA Times, like, just all over the place. They couldn't nuts. take a feed and give you a break. Goodness. <laughs> it's back. It's back. But I'm, I'm grateful for all of the work experience that I'd had in this business um, up to that moment because I felt like everything I had done prior had prepared me to be able to, you know, be in a moment like that. Well, that's so. a really good point. This was a tipping point for you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. what was life like before that happened? Well, um, so I have been, uh, most recently I have been a reporter at a station in Tampa, Florida, and I have been laid off. Um, and so I had been, I had spent a year and a couple of months, like looking for a new job and interviewing here, interviewing there and going to this city to interview and, you know, back and forth and, and nothing was really hitting. And that morning, actually, I'd had what was like my last scheduled interview. And I had been looking forward to it for, you know, a number of days or weeks and was like really excited about it. And like, I got on the phone call and I remember, you know how sometimes, you know, immediately, like, this is not, right. this, this is not it. it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, being a podcaster, like I've had guests on and immediately, like, as soon as they start talking, you're like, this ain't going to be a good mm-hmm. one. And like, immediately in that phone call, I was like, this is not a show that I'm interested in working on. This is not going to be good. And like, just was trying to like get through the call so that I could go like, you know, move on. And after that call, I was so deflated. I was really let down and just like, this was like the last thing, like, what am I going to do? And I, I just prayed. I was like, listen, God, girl, I don't know what you're doing, (laughs) but you're, I'm, I'm exhausted. And like, whatever you want me to do, I will do it. But like, I need you to do something because I need something to work. Well, did he deliver um, or what? Absolutely. <laughs> and I, I mean, in that, I always say like being a, a, an accountant would be the worst job for me because I would be terrible at it. Not that it's a bad job. It just wouldn't be good for me. Um, and I was like, if you want me to go be an accountant, I will go be an accountant. But like, I need you to say yes to something because everything feels like a no right now. Um, and that was like two or three o'clock in the afternoon. And this happened at eight or nine. So it was that same day. Yeah. So like after, like immediately after, after all the interviews, what happened? Life changed. Life changed a lot. And I mean, it's been, it's still been an up and down Mm -hmm. thing. So it wasn't like, you're a star. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Um, I had a lot of opportunities come and uh, the the first like big thing that happened was I had been hosting a podcast for about four years at that time called Back to Reality with Jared Hill and uh, I'm Jared Hill. And so we, uh, the, the folks at NBC BLK, um, uh, Amber was her name. She was the editor there. And she was like, we want to do something with you. Like, let's see what we can do. And I was like, well, I have this show. And uh, we transitioned that into being a Facebook Live show for NBC News. And so every week we did a show that was f- focused on politics and pop culture through the lens of blackness. And uh, it was great because it was an opportunity for me to grow the show that I had been doing and, you know, be exposed to a lot more people than I had been exposed to prior. Um, And it was really, really fantastic. But then other writing opportunities Mm -hmm. came. And um, so that's how I ended up in all of these other places because my Twitter following grew, you know, tenfold or more than that um, over the course of that that week, those couple of weeks, and has continued to grow since. And so an editor at the New York Times, um, she was like, oh, yeah, I've been following you since that story. Like, you know, would you be interested in working on this? And I was like, 
Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know Is that I mean? even a question? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, um, the editor there, Jill, she's been she's been really really great, and um, so I've, I've written with her a number of times, and it's also allowed me into rooms that I wasn't necessarily you know getting seen to come into. So it's been really great. It's also been a challenge because like I'm still a freelancer. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I go back and forth on whether or not I want to be a full timer. There are times when it seems like it'd be really appealing for the right opportunity, and then there are times when it seems like being a freelancer is the best for me. So right now I'm kind of in this space of trying to decide if I want to go back to being a full-timer somewhere just because uh, it's it has its perks mm-hmm. um, of a place. So well, you know I'm, I'm kind of in that. The, the Culture Soup is a little bit inspirational too because we tell these stories of my friends and they all have these incredible stories and you, you are not an exception. <laughs> what was the lesson in it? Because you know what I'm hearing and then I want you to tell me. But what I'm hearing... Yeah. When you were truly in your most authentic self, doing what Jared does, doors open. Yeah, yeah. For me, I have found that twice in my life I've been in that moment of like, look, God, what do you want me to do? And it's been a reminder, if nothing else, um, from God, the all, Mm -hmm. the universe, whatever you like to call it, um, that like, I didn't do all this for nothing. Mm-hmm. I haven't put you in front of these people. I haven't brought you to this room. I haven't given you this experience. I haven't shown you that I've shown you and I haven't given you the gifts that I've given you to do nothing with them. So if you think that I've had you as a journalist since you were in 11th grade and being a creative for since fifth grade, and being able to speak in front of people and hosting events since you were in eighth grade. If you think I did all that for you to go be an accountant, you're an idiot. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. If I wanted you to be an accountant, I would have put you in math mm-hmm. and I would have, mm-hmm. you know, taken you into the business route and I would have taken you in that route to go be an accountant. But like, if you think I did all of this for you to go do that, you're not paying attention. So his promises and are real. Yeah, and it's just it, it's mm-hmm. also interesting to me because um, I was I was actually just talking to a friend of mine about this um, right before we were on this call. I had never called myself a journalist before um, before this happened. I had always been a writer or a producer mm-hmm. or a list of other things, um, and I had never called myself a journalist because I always thought of being a journalist as something that was bigger than me. Like, I was not good enough to call myself that. Um, And then when this happened, I remember the first headline that I saw that jarred me was from the New York Times. Um, And they referenced me as a journalist. Mind you, all the headlines were shady because it was like, out of work journalist, unemployed journalist, journalist that that don't got no job. All of them said journalist. And it was so jarring to me physically. Like, what is that? Like, no, 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 no. Like, I'm not, you know what I mean? And then kind of sitting with that for a while and being like, okay, I mean, it makes sense. But like, I had never been comfortable using that title for myself, um, which I later would realize is something we call the imposter syndrome of like never feeling worthy of like your success and the things that you've, you've, um, the, the accolades that you get or the work that you get to do or anything like that. And so, 
um, that was a big part of, uh, of what came after that for me was being able to embrace that, like, this is what I do. This is a part of who I am. And I've, I've been this person. I've been a journalist since I was in 11th grade when I was on the school newspaper. Um, and, you know, learning to write stories. And my first story that I ever wrote when I was in newspaper went viral, if you will, um, in our, in our city where we're from, you know? So, um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what the message was to me. Like, I didn't, I didn't give you all of this. I didn't have give you all this experience for you to to not use it. Social media and such, and you're a digital native, right? So you're right there in your space, and you're still in that space. Mm -hmm. So there are a number of topics that we talked about that we want to delve into about how the social sphere is rolling right now and one thing you mentioned was how white supremacy is kind of taking hold right yeah. now yeah tell me tell me your thoughts on that because i have noticed that there's all sorts of vitriol on social media of all places where it can be a very positive place it can be a very negative one too absolutely absolutely i've been working on this piece that i'm trying to to get out of myself if you will um for probably over a year that's just kind of been like stewing in me about reframing the idea of what white supremacy is. Um, Cause I think when people hear white supremacy, they think of white hoods and burning crosses and you know, the hand and the swastika and all that, which obviously that is a demonstration of white supremacy, but it's not the demonstration of, of white supremacy. Um, white supremacy, if you just say it multiple times, it starts to just become words, right? It's about this idea of whiteness being supreme or better or bigger or nicer or cleaner or more self, more, more um, uh, desirable or whatever, whatever uh, adjective you want to put in there. And so I've been thinking about the ways in which it shows up in our lives in every aspect of life. Um, as a media person that works in television, the fact that we are still seeing like the first black person anchor this or host right. that or get this position, that's a function of white supremacy, right? It's always been a white person who's been able to break, that, that has always held these positions and like a black person is the first person in late night or a black person or a brown person even, right? Like right, right. now we have um, Hassan Minash who has this excellent show, Patriot Act on, on Netflix. He's the first, you know, Middle Eastern man to, or Indian man to have a late night themed show. Mm-hmm. That's a function of white supremacy, right? But also, and are you like me? I I don't get excited when I hear that in 2018. It's it's the first black so and so, and I'm like, okay, that would have been cool in 1920. Maybe in the 60s. Yes. When you may, but like. I, I'm I'm on both sides of the spectrum. Like I'm happy to see that person break the barrier, but it right. also always illuminates for me like how much more work we have to do. Um, I think about Barack Obama being elected, and in 2008, you know, the next morning, uh, the New York Times says Obama, you know, that our country um, has finally broken this racial barrier. And I always think like, yeah, we've broken through this barrier, but like we still have a whole lot of work to do when Barack Obama could have been elected and him being black wasn't a part of the headline or the sub the sub headline. Mm-hmm. Then we were past race. Right. And like right. we're a long way away from that. Um, and many would argue that we're actually in a worse position now um, by some standards than we were back then. Oh, it's so been like a boomerang. What's that? It's been like a boomerang. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I, I say it's like an, a massive overcorrection, right? Like mm-hmm. we had all of this progress and now we've like, if we took five steps forward, we feel like we've taken three steps back and maybe right. even six, depending on the day. Um, so it's, I'm, I'm always finding the different ways that white supremacy presents itself uh, for for myself in, in our culture. Um, talking with my friend on the phone, he was talking about feeling like at work, he has to present in a certain way for white people to see him as capable or valuable or, you know what I mean, um, as as worthy of the position. And I, I'm right. like, how many black people have work, walked into work and felt that, right? Yeah. How many how many black people have uh, been in a space and felt belittled or or othered or or just degraded because they didn't look like the other right. people? And, you know, I wrote a piece. Uh, recently, I don't know if you've seen it yet. I haven't published it in any of the big uh, publications yet. It, it will be soon, but mm-hmm. it's about microaggressions mm-hmm. and just how you can just be walking along in your da- daily life, minding your own business, doing mundane things when someone will walk into your space and try to command your space and command Absolutely. you too. Absolutely. And it was all because of a, a T-shirt I had on that had French on it. It says Sava on the front mm-hmm. and on the back, Trebian Rossi. You know what? That's conversational French. Like, if you have Google Translate, you can get it. But I'm sitting there with my daughter, my six-year-old, mm-hmm. trying to have lunch. And I go to get a lemonade. And this woman walks up behind me and says, do you know what your shirt says? Right. Excuse that me. That look right Do there. Do you that, know what my shirt says? <laughs> that look right there. So I'm, I'm like trying to fill up my baby's cup, and I'm like, I'm gonna have to gather somebody up. Listen. So I turn around and I said, Well, of course I know what my shirt hat, hat says. I have it on, and I went on about my business. And then she says, she presses. Do you know French? Oh. <laughs> You got to you got to read the article because it was a lesson in parenting yes. and a lesson in confronting microaggressions. Okay. Right there in front of my daughter. I love it. I love it. Yeah, but I mean, people don't see that as white supremacy. I never called the woman out as white. Heck, she could have been anything in the scenario, but she was. And that's what happened. I don't know if she thought I was younger and just had on a hand-me-down or what? But yes, I took almost eight years of French. I mean, thank in you. high school and college. But I don't think I need to explain that to you because you're not in charge. Exactly. You're not the boss. Right. Of me. Well, exactly. and I think I think you touched on an important point. Like when we hear white supremacy, again, we think of white, white supremacists as like mm-hmm. these images of what we've seen in, in, in our lives and in media. But realistically, like white supremacy is pervasive in all communities, right? There are black people, all of us as black people, um, think things, feel things, respond to things in a way that centers whiteness, that um, says whiteness is rightness, if you will. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a problem that, you know, that touches everyone. And I mm-hmm. was just saying to someone on the phone the other day, like, I don't know if white supremacy is our greatest import or export because it obviously didn't start here, but like it came to America with the colonized, the colonizer. Anywhere Uh, there was colonizing. Exactly. Like they brought it 
they brought it here and then like it has definitely exported itself around the world it's worldwide mm-hmm. and it's well and like i i i i use this example because it it shows like it's not just about white people so like there's a story of a canadian restaurant that on occasion will charge the people for their food before they get the food as opposed to after um and on occasion uh, well like if they recognize the people as people they quote know um uh-huh. and like the server was an asian woman and she saw these black people come in and she pre-charged them for their food uh-huh. as opposed to after their after they had been served and eaten their food and it was one of those things of oh we don't know who the, those black people are and so we're going to make sure that we get our money that's a function of white supremacy, right? You oh, see totally. something that is not white as not being as good as and thinking, oh, they, they're probably going to steal or they probably don't have the money to be here. Or do you speak French? And like being surprised by the answer. You know what yes. I mean? Um, when you see me walking, like I've also, I've often had jobs where my bosses were white women. When I walk into a meeting, when I walk into a conversation or, you know, God forbid, there's an issue or something. Right. I am always hyper aware that I'm a six foot three black, loud voice, loud voice (laughs) man who walks into a space. And I know that I am I am inherently intimidating before I even start to speak. Right. And then I speak this way as opposed to what you might say black people are supposed to quote unquote speak like. Um, and I'm always as hyper aware of how I present and want to make sure that people feel comfortable and are, they're okay. And that I, that they don't think that I mean this and that. And like mm-hmm. slowly I've been chipping away at that and being like, look, I'm not here to make you feel comfortable. I'm here to do my job. And like, you know, and, and that kind of thing. I have a, uh, a, a friend who what he's a manager, a director at his job and he manages Um, a group of people and he is the most measured, careful, thoughtful person with the kindest, most thoughtful words. And, you know, he had to, to uh, tell an employee, like, you're not doing your job basically. And he's like, I had, I was there with my hands folded in a low tone and using kind words and being thoughtful and expressive and all of this. And afterward she went to my senior and said, I felt threatened and I was afraid and I was scared and they have an intervention and he and he said she says to him well i felt like you were banging your hands on the desk and you were doing this and he was like hold on was i doing that or you felt like i was doing that mm-hmm. well i felt like okay so that's that's to do with you not about me that's white supremacy i'm afraid of right. you black man you are i have this image of you as being violent or aggressive or angry um, because of what what I've been told about what, what it is to be black and not white. I was so glad when McKenzie and Lean In in the Women in the Workplace study mm-hmm. leaned in for women of color mm. because we've always known that there's a difference. But now there's data, and they say that black women are suffering the most in corporate America from what they call a double outsider. The study is quite fascinating. You're black and you're a woman, right? There's the intersection. Black and you're, you're black and you're a woman, which is the exact opposite of the infrastructure that corporate America is used to, which is white and male. Mm-hmm. So you're very present is an issue, right? Absolutely. Where people are used to seeing you in not even that space but if you're in that space perhaps you are support perhaps mm-hmm. you are cleaning 
perhaps you're doing something else other than being in charge. So we end up facing more than even our white sisters because we're double opposite. And that's Which just- Which part for white women to get to. Yes. I was like, Eureka, I'm glad somebody wrote that down because I felt it all my working life. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Yeah. There's something there's something really valuable in being able to capture data about that, right? Mm -hmm. Because when the when the evidence is always anecdotal, it's oh, that's about Michelle. Right. Oh, that's about Skyler. Oh, that's about Jared. Right. But it's like no 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 no. This is about the culture. Right. This is about society. Mm -hmm. This is about the workplace and, and how we've all been trained. Um and I, I this always comes back to me whenever I think about this. There's something so valuable in that test that was done with the, the kids and the dolls. And I can't remember yes. what they call the kids and the dolls, where they ask the kids, the little, little kids, like they show them these black dolls and white dolls and ask them, like, which one is the good doll? Which one is the bad doll? Which one is the pretty one? Which one is the ugly? Which one is bad? Which one is good? And like the idea that even these little kids, mm -hmm. right, they've already learned this idea that being black is wrong. Um, and what does that do to a kid? Right. Yeah. To see yourself reflected and to see that you are what is bad. Mm. There's some self-fulfilling prophecy in there. Right. Oh, like totally. Well, and here's the thing. Dolls in culture all the way back to prehistoric times were made for modeling for kids. So they modeled through play with these dolls. And I, I literally did some studies on that in college. Mm -hmm. And so it's 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 no mistake that they would actually use dolls in that test in the 19 what 70s was it 60s 70s it was an old test it did multiple times yeah mm -hmm. and it's always come back the same yeah mm -hmm. yeah jared what projects are you working on now that you can talk about what's coming up well i've been developing show ideas and I'm currently pitching those ideas out right now. Um, the big project that I'm working on right now is a book that is, girl, it is kicking my ass. Um, <laughs> it is a lot of work, but I'm so excited about it. Uh, it's about a man named Reggie Webb. He is this extraordinary black man who was uh, one of the highest level executives. He was the highest level executive at McDonald's at the time that was black. I thought um, I know his name. Yeah, and he uh, is just an awesome, awesome man who uh, left the corporate side of McDonald's to be on the franchise side of McDonald's and now runs a company with a thousand employees and really, really changed the face of McDonald's with uh, what is called a parity agreement, getting McDonald's to agree that their company needs to look like America. Um, and if America's 13% of black people, we need to have McDonald's be 13% black people at least. That crossed over to all of marginalized groups, and to women, to Latinos and Asians and all that. So um, I'm working on that book right now. And, you know, let's pray that the Holy Ghost sends the anointing. Uh, <laughs> and also uh, still writing at a bunch of places and uh, venturing into some new spaces as well uh, in media and television. So I'm excited about it. That's awesome. Yeah. Jared, tell everybody where to find you online if they haven't already. Yes. Um, everywhere I am at Jarrett Pill. Um, my name is Jarrett with two R's and two T's. Um, no matter what they tell you at Starbucks, because girl, they have spelled it every kind of way. Um, so it's Jarrett Hill uh, on I'm Twitter. I'm Michael but, at Starbucks. Yeah, exactly. 
literally today it was Jet, J-E-T. Oh. I said it oh so many times. So Jarrett Hill everywhere. Um, and you can find me, follow me, and reach out to me at JarrettHill.com. Um, so yeah. Best of luck to you, Jared. If there's ever anything I can do to support you, you let me know. I appreciate and it. And we want to have you back. Absolutely. Okay. You know where to find me. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Jared. Bye. Bye. So there you have it. What an amazing story. Now, what I've done is I have put the uncut video version of Jared and my conversation at theculturesoup.com. So you want to check that out because there was a lot of, you know, I can see you and you can see me and we were vibing off of each other. The conversation is even better in person. So check that out. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at theculturesoup. And of course, that's culturesoup.com. Coming up next week, we have our bonus episode. Next Thursday is Thanksgiving. It's Turkey Day. So everybody, I have young actor, Maceo Smedley. You probably saw him on All About the Washingtons. You may have even seen him on Cloak and Dagger and even before that, Underground. So tune in, be sure to tell a friend to subscribe and make sure that you sign up to win the one and only signed autograph CD from Audrey Dubois-Harris. She'll be giving that away on Christmas Day with another special edition. Have a good one. The Culture Soup Podcast is a production of No Silos Communications.